Blog Talk Radio. Mr. President, we have a national emergency. This is one of the things that we can shoot first and ask questions later. Uh, Normally you can't do that. All of a sudden these trees started moving out of the way. They parted for me. And then I came out into this opening and there where I saw Jesus Christ. Location buried deep below the earth. You're about to make a connection to the signs of the times. W. Dean Shook is live on the air right now. Welcome in to End Time News. I am your very humbled host, W. Dean Shook, bringing you the news the mainstream media is never going to touch, except today. We're going to have a decent conversation about. What is democratic socialism? A lot of people have a wrong idea about what this is. Just to say he's a socialist is only part right. I think we need to understand what a democratic socialist is. Because, you know, it comes from a term that was coined back in 1515 by British writer Thomas More. And his utopia describes a perfect place or society where everyone is equal socially and economically, which means there are no winners, no losers. You can forget prosperity. But the political and the economic theory of socialism was created with the vision of a utopian society in mind. Now, contrary to other economic systems, there's no real consensus on how the ideal socialist society should function. Dozens of forms of socialism exist with all of the differing ideas about economic planning, community size, and other factors. And despite the variations in socialist thought, every version advocates the benefit of cooperation among people. Oh, and the liberals just love that because you're steering clear of what they call the evils of competition associated with capitalism. True socialists advocate a completely classless society where the government controls all means in production of distribution of goods. Now, socialists believe this control is necessary to eliminate competition among the people and put everyone on the level playing field. And you've heard Mr. Obama talk about that all the time. He wants to put everyone on a level playing field. Well, socialism is also characterized by the absence of private property. The idea is that if everyone works, everyone will reap the same benefits and prosper equally. Therefore, everyone receives 
equal earnings, medical care, and all of the necessities, pretty much, you know, the old chicken in every pot idea. And as we've learned, socialism is difficult to define because it has so many incarnations. One of the things that socialists agree on is that capitalism causes oppression of the lower class. And socialists believe that due to the competitive nature of capitalism, the wealthiest minority maintains control of industry effectively, driving down wages and opportunity for the working class. And the main goal of socialism is to dispel class distinction by turning over control of industry to the state. The result, in their view, is a harmonious society, free of oppression, financial instability. Well, let's talk about the type of socialism that we're talking about with a democratic socialist. We have this to some degree now. It's called a mixed economy, part socialist, part capitalist. And let me give you an example of this. A mixed economy is where companies are still privately owned, but the government controls every aspect of how you do business. Now, as most of you know, I broadcast from the beautiful state of Oregon. Please don't come here. And Oregon has had legal marijuana for some years now. But a, a few months ago, the voters approved recreational use of marijuana. And before the law went into effect, the state legislature drafted an 86 pages of rules and regulations on how these new quote-unquote pot shops can do business. Now, this 86 pages of regulations was just the start. They then broke the shops up so that the medical side could not sell recreational and the recreational side could not sell medical. That's what they did first. So the government's telling these business who they can or can't sell to. But wait, there's more. Now they've set up a sales tax on these weed sales. Now, keep in mind, Oregon does not have a sales tax, and they put in a tracking system. This system is called Seed to Sale, where the grower has to register every seed they plant, then report the strain and the THC content of each plant they grow. That information goes into a database, and when the product is sold to a store, be it medical or recreational, it has to be labeled with that strain and the THC content of that seed. The state then does what it calls spot inspections with a small handheld computer system to verify that the seed that was planted and its THC content match what's in their database so they can verify the proper tax amount. This is private businesses, but very heavy government control from inception to final use. This is where you have capitalism. It's still private owners. They still make a profit. But every aspect of the business is controlled very tightly by the state. Now, there's other kinds of socialism. There's guild socialism, which is based on a 19th century England workers' guilds, similar to unions that we see today, who are responsible for the control and management of goods, just like the unions today, say the uh, teachers' union, will dictate what the curriculum is going to be, how long uh, they dictate all of it. There's the utopian socialism. This advocates social ownership of industry and voluntary 
nonviolent surrender of property to the state. This is implemented in communities like in Robert Owen's New Lanark. Then there's state socialism. State socialism allows major industries to be publicly owned and operated, but owned by the state. Then there's anarchism. Anarchism opposes domination by the family, the state, religious leaders, and the wealthy. Anarchism is completely opposed to any form of repression, does that sound familiar, and has been associated with some very radical events, including assassinations in Italy, France, and Greece, and in fact, U.S. President William McKinley was assassinated by an anarchist. Then we have market socialism often referred to as a compromise between socialism and capitalism. Now, in this type of society, the government still owns many of the resources, but market forces determine production and demand. Government workers are also enticed with incentives to increase efficiency, as long as they all stay on the same level playing field, of course. Then there's agrarianism. This is a form of socialism that features the equitable redistribution of land among what they considered the great unwashed or the peasants and self-government similar to that in communal living. Now, agrarian ideas are popular in the United States and were up into the 1900s, although increasing government control kind of deterred their growth. Well, in history, we have people like Thomas More, who coined the term utopia, but utopian imaginings began long before this. Plato described a similar environment when he wrote the philosophical work Republic in 360 BC. And in 1927, Francis Bacon's New Atlantis advocated a more scientific approach. Rooted in the scientific method, Bacon envisioned a research institute-like society where inhabitants studied science in an effort to create a harmonious environment, a harmonious environment through their accumulation of knowledge. And in addition to these landmark works, more than 40 utopian-themed novels were published from 1700 to 1850. And it really cemented its status as a very popular idea because many social injustices, such as slavery and oppression, were still running rampant at that time. Now, while a French revolutionary named Francis Babeuf is credited with the idea of doing away with private property to create equality, it's often considered the first socialist. The concept wasn't popular until the late 1700s, though. And when the Industrial Revolution caused some drastic changes around the world, everything changed because the revolution marked a shift from agricultural societies to modern industries where tools were rejected in favor of cutting-edge machinery. Factories and railways sprung up, resulting in tremendous wealth for the owners of these industries. And while they profited from these changes, workers were thrown into sudden poverty due to the lack of jobs, and machines began to replace human labor. While a lot of people feared that this discrepancy in income would continue to spread, making the rich richer and the poor poorer. And in socialism, that's the main goal. They don't want the rich to be rich or the poor to be poor. Everyone on an equal playing field. So there's no prosperity and there's no poverty. And the fear that came from this created unrest with the working class. Poor housing and bad working conditions, slave labor, which was still rampant in the U.S., 
contributed to this desire for a more equal society. And as a result, socialist ideas quickly became very popular among the impoverished workers. So the people who are in the lower class, who are poor, low income, they loved the idea of socialism. Communes such as Brook Farm and New Harmony began popping up in the United States and Europe. These small communities abided by socialist principles and they worked to avoid the class struggles that controlled the rest of the world. New Harmony, by the way, was considered a center of scientific thought and boasted the United States' first free library, public school, and kindergarten. And despite the presence of small communes and the spread of the socialist thought, socialism remains largely just an idea rather than a reality. Soviet dictator Vladimir Lenin was the first leader to put socialism to the test. Though he was a communist, which is really a branch of socialism that uses a utopian society, Lenin implemented many socialist initiatives in the Soviet Union after his takeover in 1917. This includes forced nationalization of industry and collectivism of agriculture. Lenin's programs weren't profitable. He eventually resorted to a mixed economy. Remember, we talked about what a mixed economy was. Whereas capitalism, you're allowed to be a capitalist, but only under very heavy government control. Mixed economy. And let me just remind you what that is. It's an economy that utilizes some capitalist and some socialist principles. Communism is sometimes referred to as a revolutionary socialism for its aggressive tactics. Although there are fundamental differences between these two theories, communism and socialism both aim to eliminate class struggles by encouraging government or state control of production and distribution. And the post-World War I era saw a rise in dramatic socialism in Europe. Socialist parties became active in the governments of Germany and Sweden, the Netherlands, Belgium, Great Britain. Socialism also became a popular part of Africa Latin America and Asia. So what is democratic socialism? How did it start in America? What does it mean for us today? Well, we're going to come back and explore how all of this works into our society now and what it means for this upcoming election if we put Hillary or Bernie Sanders into office. But i got to take this short break. I'll be back in just a minute. You're not going to want to miss this. You're listening to a global pioneer in the new mainstream media, End Time News with W. Dean Shook, your connection to the signs of the times. GoDaddy offers everything you need to make a name for yourself on the web, from domain names and website builders to complete e-commerce solutions. We've earned our place as the world's number one accredited domain registrar by delivering world-class products at competitive prices and support them with industry-best services delivered 24-7, 365. We're proud to serve our customers from locations around the world. Sign up now at WDShook.com and get your domain name as low as $5.99 a year. Sign up now at WDShook.com. Go, Daddy. Go, Daddy. 
know, it seems these days that not a single one of us steps on a train, boards an airplane, attends a concert or a sporting event and doesn't have at least a fleeting concern that terror could strike. The reality of the post-9-11 world is that we're at war and we are a target. We all live with some level of uncertainty and fear. It's easy to lose sight of an issue that defines our generation, the need to stop terrorism in our time. Our president apologizes for America, and he's made it clear that the era of American exceptionalism is over. He campaigned on closing Guantanamo and trying terrorists in civilian court. On his second day in office, he stopped enhanced interrogation and he closed down the black sites. You know, where we got the intel that ultimately led us to bin Laden. He has all but abandoned Israel despite the fact that Iran is the world's leading sponsor of terror that openly calls for the annihilation of Israel. All while Iran develops a nuclear bomb that they recently announced could be delivered to U.S. targets via missiles developed during Obama's presidency. While he does nothing but talk, the question for every American is simply, are we safer? AreWeSafer.com provides you with the facts and the potential consequences of these failed policies so that you can make informed decisions. I mean, let's face it. If things don't change, everything changes. And we all hope that day never comes. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. are the stakes. We either stand up to supporters of terrorism, or we and our allies risk losing the freedom we cherish. We must not let the jihadist government of Iran get a nuclear bomb. President Obama has had opportunity to stop them, but he's failing. Join with us, and let's secure America now. Thank you for allowing me that break and for sticking with me. I appreciate it so much. So let me tell you how this works into our economy in present day. And I'm going to start that. I'm going to play you a clip here. This clip is the oil industry going to Congress asking permission to drill because they have to have permission to drill. And this is an exchange between some executives from the oil industry asking for this permission to drill and the reply is from Maxine Waters, Democrat from California, where she accidentally lets the truth slip out. Listen to this clip. What guarantees are you going to give this liberal about how that will reduce the cost of, uh, of uh, gasoline at the pump if we let you drill where you say you want to drill? I can guarantee to the American people, because of the inaction of the United States Congress, ever-increasing prices unless the demand comes down, and the $5 will look like a very low price in the years to come if we are prohibited from finding new reserves, new opportunities to increase supplies. And guess what this liberal would be all about? This liberal will be all about 
socializing uh, um, would be about basically taking over and the government running all of your companies. This is actually the democratic mantra. This is how they feel. This is what they've been doing. Obama, Hillary, they've been pushing all of this. Everybody on an equal playing field. Everybody plays by the same rules. Everything is equal. No class warfare. Everything is equal. This is this mixed economy that I've been talking about. So how did we get to this point? Now, you really need to listen to this very closely. I mean, really pay attention to this, because this is the rise and fall of a democratic socialism in history. And you'll see why it won't work now. In the early 1900s, the disparity of wealth in the United States was growing, and socialist ideology was on the rise. In 1874, a group of socialists formed the Working Man's Party, later known as the Socialist Labor Party. The group advocates the reform of social businesses, labor issues, and other equality concerns, because equality is the point. The Socialist Labor Party merged with the Socialist Democratic Party in 1901 to the Socialist Party of America by 1912. The party had more than 100,000 members, but the party's growth in the United States was hindered in 1917 when the government enacted the Espionage Act. Now, the Espionage Act originated out of the government's fear of communist way of life and fear incited by that bloody Bolshevik revolution in Russia, which resulted in many millions of deaths and the complete overthrow of the Russian government. The Espionage Act encouraged patriotism above all else, and it made it illegal to publicly impose involvement in World War I. Well, supporters of socialism became very wary of associating with any kind of controversial communist system. And the Socialist Labor Party membership in the U.S. plummeted in the 1950s. And the fear of association with socialism and communism continued right through the McCarthy era, during which Senator Joseph McCarthy fingered suspected communists. Many people feared that they'd be targets of McCarthy and kept a low profile by discontinuing their involvement in that party. But even despite these attacks on communists and socialist way of life, socialists still exist in the United States, often supported by respected thinkers of the time. For example, noted scholar Albert Einstein, he penned a paper called Why Socialism in 1949, where he described the need for a socialist economy to eliminate the quote-unquote evils of unemployment and competitive economies. He emphasized the need for an educational system to achieve socialist goals. Now pay attention to this. He emphasized the need of an educational system to achieve socialist goals. Now, some some may argue with me on this, but I would say we have that education system right now. Our students are being indoctrinated into the socialist idea. He also advocated a planned economy to ensure the livelihood of every citizen. And there's other famous socialists, including John Lennon of the Beatles and Susan B. Anthony. Now remember, under socialism, government mandates productions and prices of goods and products. 
they control, even if you're a private business, they still control you. Now, after World War II, socialist parties took control in more nations. A lot of countries nationalized major industries, such as coal and steel. These countries also encouraged government planning to spur economic growth. Does that sound familiar? I mean, societies took socialism out of the theoretical context and put it to the test and found that there were some flaws and some successes in the system. One of the most famous examples of socialism in practice took place in New Lanark, Scotland. The village was founded in 1786, but it wasn't until 1800 that it became world famous as a social experiment of sorts. And there was Robert Owen, a philanthropist, successful businessman, and dedicated to social reform who made his fortune during the Industrial Revolution. He was known for his benevolence. Owen longed to create this village in this utopian socialist idea. He turned the cotton mill-based town of New Lanark into a cooperative society where everyone abided by the social premise of equal work, equal pay, no ownership of private property, and Owens Institute progressive labor reforms reduced work hours, safer working conditions, and minimum age requirements for child labor. Although he mandated age 10 as the appropriate age, which is still very young by today's standards, there was roughly 2,500 people called New Landmark Home including about 500 children whose lot in life Owen was determined to improve through education and better labor policies. In fact, in 1816, Great Britain's inaugural preschool was opened in New Lanark. Owen's society was so successful that it generated substantial profits and it attracted the world's attention. Tourists used to flock to New Lanark to see what exactly it was like. Well, Owen's vision became very successful in reality in New Lanark, but it didn't spread throughout Great Britain as he had hoped it would. In 1824, Owen decided to throw in the towel on what he considered a closed-minded environment, and he sailed to the United States. He purchased land in New Harmony, Indiana, where he established a commune with similar standards to New Lanark's. He even made more progressive strides at New Harmony, by putting forward the radical idea of equal rights for women. Now, around the height of New Harmony's success, 15 other social communities had sprang up. However, none stood the test of time. They all collapsed. New Harmony itself folded with one of Owen's business partners left, and he took the community's profits with him. <laughs> Irony, huh? Well, in the end, Owen lost most of his personal wealth because of his utopian society. He returned to England in 1829, where he helped establish Britain's first trade unions. Through this visionary's village can't be considered completely successful. They certainly paved the way for labor reform around the world. And we can see the part that union plays and why Democrats are so adamantly pro-union, because unions were developed, created by a socialist under socialist guidelines. Another example applied to socialism began just after World War II. Great Britain's storied leader during the devastating war, Prime Minister Winston Churchill, 
shockingly, was defeated in a re-election by Clement Attlee. Now, I know some of you already know this, but, you know, some of you don't. So let me tell this story about Mr. Attlee, a virtual unknown outside of Britain. Attlee was the head of the Labour Party, a democratic socialist party established in 1900. While Churchill was head of the controversial party, he also known as the Troy Party. After World War II, a lot of Britain was fed up with the health care concerns and the labor problems. Many people didn't believe that Churchill's Tory Party would even affect any change at all. So Attlee's Socialist Party addressed these issues by nationalizing industry and creating a free health care system. A democratic socialist created their free health care system. The Labour Party nationalized Britain's main industries, including, now listen to this, coal, electricity, steel, and railways. Nationalization occurs when the state takes over the means of production and distribution. The idea that any profits generated will then benefit the country rather than the wealthy few. Some improvements resulted from a nationalization in Britain. For example, coal miners are given paid vacation and sick leave. Does that sound familiar? Their safety became a greater concern. Nationalizing industry turned out to be a little trickier than anyone initially thought because industries became ineffective and unprofitable because no competition existed to motivate workers to perform their job any better. This new government also established National Health Service, the NHS, in 1948, which provided free medical care. The system was extremely popular to a fault. Funds allocated for the NHS were used up quickly, having been far under-budgeted. Does that sound familiar? But because this program was so popular among the people, it was kept in place, despite the debt that it incurred. It remains even today as the only major change implemented by Attlee's Labor Party. Unfortunately, getting medical care under this free system can be a very tenuous process with the long waiting time, the same thing they're experiencing in Canada. And even though nationalization, free health care aimed to help the people, Great Britain began to suffer steep inflation rates, as high as 24% in 1975, high unemployment rates, Welfare costs were also draining the economy. The period of December of 1978 through January of 79 became known as the Winter of Discontent, an expression that originated from Shakespeare's play Richard III. And today, thanks to many members of the public sector who went on strike, including truck drivers, medical personnel, and teachers, to the British people, the Labour Party seemed incapable of controlling the strikes that were affecting the public. Due to this strife, the Conservative Party came back into power with Margaret Thatcher when she was elected the first female Prime Minister in 1979. And the reason that all of these benefits under this socialism didn't work is because socialism doesn't work. The idea of free health care, free college, all of the welfare programs, everything on an equal playing field... All of that hasn't worked in history and never will. So what did Thatcher do? She worked to improve the economy through, guess what, reduced spending in areas like education and health care. And even though inflation went down, unemployment continued to go up. Under Thatcher's leadership, 
Britain's government denationalized a lot of important companies, starting with British Telecom by selling it off to shareholders. The company's profitability and efficiency skyrocketed. She also reduced the power of trade unions to decrease the number of economically devastating strikes because people don't want to be controlled. That's why they strike. People do not want to be controlled. And even though a lot of her policies may not have been popular, Thatcher managed to resolve some dicey economic situations. Her election was seen as a great victory for capitalism and promoted the beginning of a capitalist revolution of sorts. Countries such as Spain and France began to steer away from socialism and suddenly the world's socialist population began to shift. Now, at the end of the 1970s, socialist and communist regimes were in control of 60% of the world's population. But things were changing fast because they were going back to a capitalist society which is the only one that works. So let's look at socialism today. What is socialism today? Well, socialism after the 70s, suffered some major setbacks due to the collapse of communism in the Soviet Union and other European states. A lot of these societies followed in Great Britain's footsteps and denationalized their industries. However, some socialist-inspired programs exist today. In fact, any program that calls for the redistribution of wealth can be considered socialist. For example, the tax that the United States poses on citizens to support the welfare program system, which provides aid to financially unstable citizens, can truly be called a socialist program. Health care systems like Obamacare, Medicare, and Medicaid fall in that same category because you're taking money from one group of people and giving it to another. Now, you notice I didn't say Social Security in there because Social Security is more of an insurance program not necessarily an entitlement, even though it crosses the line into entitlement when people who haven't earned it still get it. Another example of socialist program is Canada's health care system. Now, proponents of this system argue that it provides free health care to those who would otherwise be uninsured or underinsured. How many times have we heard that? They also point to the rising cost of health care in places like the United States, which some believe is caused by this dirty, stinking, rotten, profit-driven insurance company, these for-profit hospitals and pharmaceutical companies. But the grass is not always greener on the other side. Canada's free health care system often delays very important medical procedures and treatments simply because it doesn't have the manpower. Only highly publicized examples of this ultimate delay is the case of identical quadruplets born in Montana. Now, these quadruplets had to be delivered in Great Falls, Montana, because a hospital in the entirety of Canada, where their parents lived, not one could handle their delivery. Every hospital was at capacity at the time. And there's other inconveniences, which include the average waiting time for an MRI of three months. Critics of the system insist that while the residents may not pay much up front, they seem to pay for it in terms of delayed care and poor quality of service. The system isn't even actually free. Roughly 22% of Canadian tax dollars are used to fund the health care system, which is exactly where ours is going to go. And socialist groups around the world continue to push for reform in their societies. However, 
They're often counteracted by critics, including the Future of Freedom Foundation, the Cato Institute, and Sons of Liberty, many of whom point to what they would consider to be the fatal error in socialism. How could any truly socialist society succeed without the incentives of profit and constraints of competition to motivate workers? Well, at any rate, the quest for purely socialist, and for that matter, a purely capitalist society, has eluded economists for years. After all, the United States, considered one of the most successful capitalist economies in the world, utilizes a number of social-inspired programs to help its financially encumbered citizens. And for the time being, at least, it seems that mixed economies featured both socialist and capitalist elements are growing every year in America. Here is how the Huffington Post describes it. When Bernie Sanders announced he was running for president, he switched his platform from independent to Democrat. Many wondered why socialists would run as a Democrat, yet what many didn't understand was the democratic socialism is not a party in itself, and it's an ideology that actually exists inside the Democratic Party. It's part of the Democratic Party. Democratic socialists only hope to strengthen the party by improving on issues that the nation faces today, such as health care, college tuition, and strengthen social safety nets. Are these not socialist programs? They are. Well, I want to share a piece from the Young Democratic Socialists of America. And this is a statement by the YDS Coordinating Committee drafted by Kayla Pace. Now, this is from Democratic Socialists of America. Here's what they say. History has shown us that fear-mongering and hatred towards certain minority groups is nothing new. And when it comes to political elections, various societies over different periods of time have shown this to be true. A notable example is the hatred directed toward the Jewish community by Nazi Germany. Unfortunately, they say, this year has proven that fear-mongering tactics are not for the history book, but something we as a democratic socialist need to fight in our current political climate. While many citizens across the nation are crying out for Sanders' presidency at the institution and more socialist policies, other more conservative Americans are crying out for Donald Trump. While young democratic socialists reprimands Trump's strong anti-Muslim sentiments. In recent comments, he has stated the need to be surveilling Muslim communities. The surveillance would potentially include a database to track them and specialized identification cards. These ideas are appalling to our ideology as socialists. We must work tirelessly to dismiss the anti-Muslim rhetoric. As a country, we should not support a candidate that's actively spreading hate among certain groups of American citizens. Well, for some reason, they refuse to see Islam for what it is. Because the fact is, Islam is the most hateful group in America. They spew extreme hate. Say, convert to Islam or die. They will cut off the head of anyone who opposes them. They say, we will keep honor killings. We will keep genital mutilations of young girls and women. We will change the American system to Sharia law. Down with America and Islam will rule the world and Sharia will be the law. But yet they seem to want to embrace these people as good, solid Americans and they want to protect their rights. These are the rights that they want to protect. 
either they just don't get it or these people have a psychological issue. We talked a few minutes ago about Winston Churchill. Let me tell you something that Winston Churchill said. He said, the inherent vice of capitalism is the unequal sharing of blessings. But the inherent virtue of socialism is the equal sharing of miseries. Well, what does that mean? There's a lot of arguments about whether communism, socialism, and liberalism are the same thing. What shouldn't be arguable is that they all closely related to the same branch of the tree. If you don't want to live in a house made of Aleppo pine, you probably won't like Kohler pine or Eastern white pine. However, since socialism has failed so often, socialists of every stripe bend over backwards to disassociate themselves from these other disasters created by their ideology. Still, a pine is still a pine. A socialist is still a socialist. It has failed every time before, and they can't separate themselves from that because it's the same ideas. Socialism is particularly dangerous because it's so perfectly suited for the modern era. It's the ultimate miracle product. It's nice. It's fair. It'll make you feel good about yourself. It will help people who deserve it by taking things away from people who have too much. They'll barely miss it. It sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But like most products with sleazy salesmen and hidden track records, the promises socialism makes are all a mirage. Since our schools do such a terrible job of teaching history and economics these days, it's our job to explain how socialism slowly, insidiously, eats away at the core of our society. It kills economic growth. Strong economic growth is what produces jobs, tax revenue, a better standard of living for everyone, including the poor and the middle class. That's what John F. Kennedy was driving at when he said a rising tide in the economy lifts a boat. Socialism strangles economic growth in the crib by penalizing successfully a rewarding future. When you loot the successful people in a society to give it to less successful, you quite naturally reduce the number of successful people by encouraging more people to fail. This leads to a never-ending cycle. The more people in need there are, the more successful must be penalized to pay for them. The very people have to be successful in order to pay for all of these programs. This causes wealth to concentrate in fewer hands. The economy slows, and even more people need help. It goes on and on until you get a slow economy that can't produce enough tax revenue to sustain itself. That's exactly what killed the Soviet Union. It killed Greece right now, and sadly, the United States and most of Western Europe is on the exact same path. Because the adage is true, eventually you run out of other people's money. This also stifles free speech. Why is there ridiculous government propaganda in nations like North Korea? Why are most school papers and colleges run by liberals in the United States? Why do liberals often try to disrupt conservative speakers on college campuses? Why are there such extreme speech codes in Canada that it practically makes some conservative arguments illegal? 
Why does speaking out against the government risk imprisonment in China and the old Soviet Union? Because socialism requires protection, propaganda, intimidation, and darkness in order to survive. Socialism can't survive honest, informed debate about its merits, especially among people who are free to choose or reject it because it would not survive the conversation. As Ronald Reagan said, how do you tell a communist? Well, it's someone who reads Marx and Lenin. And how do you tell an anti-communist? It's someone who understands Marx and Lenin. It leads to an increasingly tyrannical government. Freedom and socialism go together like oil and water. The more socialists you have, the less freedom you'll have because socialism cannot survive if people are free to choose whether they want socialism or not. People are not free to say what they want. And you can't say anything about socialism's failures. Areas that aren't tightly controlled will move toward the free exchange of ideas and goods, not socialism. So socialism requires a massive bureaucracy that almost inevitably grows. As government grows, it inevitably comes more centralized.